Hello, and thanks for listening to The Limitless Pregnancy. This week is the last of our grief series. All month, we've been hearing stories of pregnancy and infant loss and holding space for those stories to be told. Today, we finish with Joanne Zerdy of Inviting Abundance. Joanne is a grief specialist and a teacher who works with grieving parents as well as providing education to practitioners and birth workers on how to handle loss and support their patients in these most difficult moments. It's a thoughtful conversation around the many layers and facets of grief and how to support loss, even if it's not child-related. Thank you so much for joining us for this important series. And if you have found value in this month's episodes, please do share with friends and loved ones. The only way that we can erase the stigmas around grief is to normalize the conversation because no one should have to suffer through loss alone. Perfect. And now we're off to the races. So I know we were talking about this before we pressed record, but I want to go back to it to normalize it (laughs) very, very briefly, which is the fact that your children also do not sleep through the night. Yes, it is true. I am living proof that, that, yeah, these kids (laughs) and many kids don't want to sleep. And I think it's really important to have this conversation because I think a lot of parents feel really isolated or that they're doing something wrong if their kids don't sleep. Um, My five-year-old didn't sleep through the night until he was about three and a half, maybe even a little older. Um, And then his little brother came along and he's nearly two and he wakes up, I mean, very regularly every hour or two at night. So I was yeah saying to you before we began that I haven't really slept well in about five years. And isn't it amazing what that does to your cognitive process, <laughs> to your ability yes. to, just, to just function and process information throughout the day? Yes. I mean, it, every day feels like you're starting at a deficit. And that's really tough. I mean, I think my mom actually worked night work for many, many years when I was younger. And I think a lot about all the folks who work overnight shifts and their, you know, circadian rhythms are always off and it's just really challenging. So yeah, I I think there are a lot of folks who, (laughs) you know, not just those of us with little children, but really it's a sleep deprivation and, and lack of sleep and lack of regular sleep. I mean, it's a real thing that affects mentally, physically, emotionally, all of that. Oh yeah. And you know, certainly extra difficult when you're dealing with grief or COVID or, you know, any number of challenges that are happening to us individually and collectively. Yes. My ability to process emotions clearly and thoughtfully (laughs) is, Mm -hmm. um, it's much easier some days than others on the nights that we don't get any sleep. I just, we sort of operate through the day at this point at a level of like, if one of us is having an emotional moment, we just have to acknowledge it and go, okay, I understand right now that, you know, we are not at a position to be able to process this in a way that maybe we would have prior to being sleep deprived for 15 months. So we just kind of give each other extra space and extra silence. And it's amazing how much it changes the way that we live. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about, we have to shift into low gear. That's what my, my husband will always says, all right, we have to shift in a little gear today. Like we just got to get through the day. And if one of us can take a nap or if we can alternate and try to give each other some time to rest, then we do that some days that of course doesn't happen. So, um, but yeah, so my heart goes out to all of those folks who are also struggling or, you know, just making do with these really difficult sleepless nights. And yeah, you feel, you basically feel like you're on call day and night with, with these little people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you are, there's no, there's no, um, 
having a regular schedule when you are the parent and you just have to be, you have to handle yourself during the day as much as you can so that you can be available to them during the night when otherwise in, in past life and before times when that was like your reset, your regeneration, it's like now Mm. you spend your night regenerating them and then get up in the morning and do it all over again. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. Fun little side note about sleep, but (laughs) let's get, let's get to the, to the real topic, which is a heavy one. Um, but I am so appreciative of your time today to be sharing on uh, during this episode, rather, because I feel like you have such a good insight, such a good amount of insight, such a good point of view on grief and loss. And I feel like you are going to have some really valuable tools to be able to provide people and also just some really valuable understanding. I think that, you know, by this point, you are the last episode in the series. So by this point, I think we probably will have talked multiple times about the amount of stigma that comes along with loss. And whether or not people see it when it happens, we all feel it, right? And it manifests differently with people, with each person. Some of us just feel an overwhelming amount of grief. Some of us feel the need to step back. Some of us feel like we don't know how to handle it. And so we react in really strange ways. And all of that is kind of normal in the way that, I mean, what's normal about grief, right? But all of that is normal in the fact that like we all have our own individual responses. But you're here today to talk specifically about newborn and infant loss and the grief that comes with that. And that is a that is a heavy load for you to carry, and I appreciate it. And I guess I just want to start at the beginning, which is how did you get here to the work that you're doing? Yeah. Well, thank you again first for thank you again first. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this month's series of conversations. I really, I really am so appreciative of anyone and everyone who wants to step into the world of grief and to normalize it and to talk about it and to share about it and to feature stories and perspectives. I just, it's, it's work that has huge social impact uh, uh, in the world. I think as we send these ripples of conversation and healing into, into our communities and cities and countries, et cetera. And I just think it's really important. So thank you for really devoting this time and energy uh, this month to to talking about grief in general, and then of course specifically to um, pregnancy and infant loss. So uh, my background is actually in theater. I have a PhD in theater history. Um, I directed university productions and met my husband uh, in graduate school, and we were both teaching in Illinois State University uh, in Central Illinois. He was teaching full time. I was part time. I became pregnant with our first child, uh, healthy pregnancy, you know, very fortunate to be able to utilize things like yoga and chiropractic sessions. Um, I, I began a journal to the baby because in my mind I had thoughts of like, well, what, what happens if like I were to die during childbirth or something were to happen to me and I wanted him, we knew it was a boy to have my words to read, to get to know me a little bit. Um, we progressed through, we found a doula that we really liked. We found a midwife that we really liked. We saw many people in her practice, including an obstetrician and prepared for the arrival. And because we were both theater academics and educators and researchers and writers, like we just dove into preparation. Uh, we found out about a 12 week Bradley method birthing class. So we signed up for three months. We worked on preparing our birth plan and you know, all the things that kind of in an ideal situation, you have access to resources and support 
um, and you go into something, you know, with eyes and heart and mind as fully open as possible. I went into labor on my due date at home, labored for several hours. We were really close to the hospital. We eventually went. I felt a lot of fear, I think, just in terms of the process, of course, like the the contraction started at five minutes apart. There was no like <laughs> slow introduction to the process. It was just like, boom, I was in labor. Which for a first baby is exciting, right? Because you always hear that like the buildup's going to take so long and... Yeah, no, no, he was ready. I was ready. You know, I really think all of the care and support and nurturing we had in, in so many ways was really prepared us both. Um, but yeah, the fear was definitely potent for me, mostly of like the pain and how to get through it. And, you know, we had practice in the Bradley method about asking if there was a proposal of an intervention to say, no, we need to talk about this. We need space. We need second opinion, you know, just to really be advocate advocates for ourselves. And we went to the hospital and yeah, our doula arrived. Our midwife came and checked in periodically. Uh, I had a birthing tub brought into the room. I mean, we really, you know, labor was terribly painful and difficult, but, you know, I felt all the, you know, all the pieces were there for support. We were nearing midnight. This was uh, nearing June 5th. And it was significant because it was going to be the fifth anniversary of when uh, my husband, Will, and I were engaged. So we were really hoping the baby would come on June 5th. And so we were nearing that point and I was getting ready to push. And my midwife wanted to do just another fetal heart check. I had had been monitored, you know, intermittently in a very, you know, common way if everything is looking, looking good. And there wasn't a heartbeat. And she, at first she thought it was the instrument, you know, so then she asked for an internal monitor and then everything changed. Uh, it was Again, just after midnight, she herself was nine months pregnant with her fourth child. Uh, my doula was pumping. She had a newborn at home. And all of a sudden, just like the room changed, the light changed. I was put on oxygen. Like things got really intense really fast. And eventually the obstetrician came in with an ultrasound. And my midwife touched my knee, just put her hand on my knee. And at that moment, I realized that the baby was gone, even before the obstetricians told me that there was no heartbeat. This physical connection with her was just really powerful. And so, you know, and my contraction, contractions keep coming. I mean, they were like on top of me. So that was really hard. So I looked at my husband, Will, who was beside me, who was, of course, also in shock. And we were trying to figure out how this could be. And I couldn't understand why my contractions would keep going. And he put our training into practice and he said, I need everyone to leave except our doula and midwife. And, and I don't know if I verbally said this or just with my eyes, but I told him that I needed a cesarean. I just couldn't keep going. I was exhausted. I'd been laboring about 22 hours and my baby had just died. So the obstetrician at first said, you know, I really would encourage you to keep going, you know, cause I was so close. I mean, they could see his head. I, I wasn't yet pushing. Oh, wow. But, you know, but he was there, but he was there. He was in the right position, et cetera. And I just, I couldn't, I mean, I did, it was just, <laughs> so then I was prepped for surgery. And when the anesthesiologist came in, he, he gave me something cause I was totally with it. I hadn't, you know, I was really didn't want an epidural. So of course, like I wasn't thinking surgery was going to happen until I absolutely needed it. But he said, here, let me give you this. This will help you forget. And I thought, oh my God, I don't want to forget. Like I've been so lucid. That was actually brought in this new wave of fear that I'm going to forget. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, maybe in hindsight, it was the best 
thing to happen, you know, that I don't have incredibly vivid memories of every moment the way that that way that Will, Will does, you know, having gone through then surgery with me. Um, and so our son was brought out and uh, I just I didn't feel like I could take him right away. I was still, you know, open on the table and I just was exhausted and I felt like I wanted to be stronger for him. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense, even yeah. though I, I knew he had died, I wanted to kind of be more together for him. So eventually went to recovery, sensation came back, went to a room and we just fell apart and Will got in a bed with me and held me and we just <laughs> were so broken by what had just happened. And eventually we did ask for the baby. We named him Finley. Uh, he's named after a Scottish poet, gardener, artist, Ian Hamilton Finley. And we you know, held our beautiful baby who was six and a half pounds and, and perfect in every way. Uh, the obstetrician didn't see anything strange in when he, you know, during the cesarean, he looked, everything looked fine. We had a couple of hours with him and then the coroner came in and asked to, um, you know, wanted him to be taken for an autopsy. And we just, we didn't know at that point, like so many parents, you're, you're so vulnerable, you're so shocked you're so hurt you're so disappointed and you just kind of go with what people suggest or ask so we right. reluctantly you know handed him over even though we really felt in our hearts there would be nothing wrong and they ended up finding no genetic or physical problem with him no no indicator no information as to what happened no the only thing that they saw on the placenta were some blood clots but the obstetrician said that he had seen that Many kind, many times before in totally healthy babies. So to him, there it was no indication of a problem. But that's the on the death certificate. That's what's listed, which was really difficult because it. I of course, like many folks who experience these kinds of losses, I was already blaming myself that I had done something wrong. And so to see my placenta listed as the cause of death, which of course it is not. Like it might be a symptom of something, but it's not a cause. That just put me, you know, this was six weeks later. This just put me into a major guilt, shame, blame, tailspin, you know. So that's, of course, was really difficult. So, well, and oh that's God. like two different kinds of grief, right? You're like grieving the fact that you've lost your baby. And then on top of that, you're grieving the fact that you are, you are placing yourself in the center focus for blame. And so then you have to, there's like all kinds of levels of acceptance and forgiveness and, and, and they're completely separate, separate from one another, right? Like, yes, they are connected because it's cause and effect, quote unquote, in theory, quote unquote, but, but you have to like grieve these two separate ideas at the same time. Absolutely. If you're doing the work, I guess you could very well avoid greeting both or grieving both. But yes, if you're, if you are looking at the full spectrum situation, it's too separate but connected situations, ideas, concepts that you have to grieve. Absolutely. And yeah, and and I'm postpartum. So there's hormonal, chemical, physiological things happening in my body. I mean, then it was one of the first things I asked my midwife when, you know, the next day after we had had Finley with us, I said, how do I stop my milk from coming in? You know, so like- I was just going to ask you about that. Okay. And that- and I did. And for two weeks, I wore two sports bras. And although I had been for, you know, weeks before his arrival, preparing, like working with my breasts, encouraging the milk to come in, all of a sudden I said, no, like, just go away. Uh, Will got me a, a sage tincture. I mean, I looked into herbal medicine. My midwife also brought me some herbal tea to take. I mean, I just, the thought of then the milk coming in just felt like 
insult to injury. You know, like my body was of course. was going to keep doing what it needed to do. And I didn't have my son with me. So that was all devastating. I mean, looking back really, and this was seven years ago, um, this past June, Finley would be seven. And I really have recognized with all the grieving parents I've met and all the grievers in general that I've met, we really were privileged in that this happened beginning of June. We were both teaching at a university. We had we didn't have work to do that summer. I mean, we our work was to become parents. So we were able to put all of our energy into grieving and becoming grieving parents for 10 weeks before we had to go back in the fall. Wow. And that was incredibly important. So, I mean, to get back to your question about, you know, leading me here today into the work that I do, supporting grievers and supporting those who support grievers, like that was such a crucial time that we had 10 weeks to just dive into everything. I mean, the despair, the, you know, moments of wishing we weren't alive, the trying to make sense of the shock and suddenness of Finley's departure, which is how we view it, that Finley departed. Mm -hmm. And reading, I mean, we, again, we relied on our kind of training, academic backgrounds. We just read, we wrote, we just dove into grief headfirst. And there was no other way because of who we are individually and in the world. Like there's no other way for us to go about this except to walk into the pain and be like, okay, now what does this mean? What does this mean to us individually? What does it mean to us as parents, as a couple, as people in the world? Um, and that really was laying the foundations for thinking about grief as a long-term, full-bodied, heart-centered practice, which is really, you know, kind of the leading ethos of the work that we do um, as grief workers. Yeah. And you brought up something that I, to be honest, have never thought about, which is the fact that you had 10 weeks to grieve. I mean, it's never, I've just never put two and two together. It's never dawned on me that people who lose their babies have to go back to real life, right? Like if, if, um, you know, if depending on everyone's circumstances, which are all different, if they didn't have time off, if they didn't have maternity, paternity leave, if they had not planned to have this time away from their outside responsibilities. I mean, I know how hard it is to go back to life when a family member dies. I've never tried to function after losing a child. I cannot wrap my brain around how you do that. Yeah. I mean, we also were, I mean, we were in Illinois, you know, we didn't have family close by. We had moved there again that previous summer for a job. So we didn't, we didn't have like outside responsibilities. I mean, we didn't have other children at the time. We weren't caring for our parents or family members, right? I mean, all of those kinds of commitments on top of employment that someone might have. Um, I, you know, subsequently in having two more sons and having major moments of grief, certainly around Finley's birthday every year and other holidays and just other times where I really feel the, the tenderness of my grief in a visceral way. Like I still have to put these kids down for a nap and make them lunch. And that's really tough. I mean, so in, in some ways, the fact that we were together, we say, I think I say we are alone together in our grief, Will and me. And Will says we were together alone in our grief. We just have kind of a slightly different way. But, you know, we're grieving individually, but certainly together. Yeah. Yeah. We were able to put all of our attention. So I, when I think about like bereavement leave, all the politics around that, 
I think there's become more and more awareness in the last few years by companies and by politicians, you know, trying to pass laws and provisions in order to give people more time and space to grieve, you know, which is, I think, ethically as well as like economically an important thing to do for people. You know, there's more conversation around this. But of course, at that time, seven years ago, I wasn't thinking about the politics of grieving and the privilege of grief. I just was immersed in loss. But yeah, my I've learned so much since then and really think about those parents, you know, whether it's a baby, whether it's a child at any age. I mean, you know, a little kid or an adult, you know, that you lose everything, you know, disappears from underneath your feet. And so that rebuilding is so important. And when you have pressures and job commitments and, oh, it just is extra, extra emotionally and physically and logistically challenging on top of that, that pain and heartache and, you know, deep, deep sorrow that you're feeling. So. Yeah. Yeah, man. Ooh, I feel like we could, we could do a whole episode just on how to properly structure bereavement care, because Mm. that's, uh, I mean, of all the things when it comes to pregnancy and postpartum and parenting of all the things that we're lacking, that's one that definitely doesn't get as much of a spotlight as the others. And I, I, in my opinion, none of it gets enough of a spotlight, but I talk a lot about the lack of support in our modern economic structure when it comes to postpartum, when it comes to maternity and paternity leave, when it comes to postpartum care in general. But bereavement is is one that I admittedly have not put a lot of thought into and I don't hear a lot about it. So yeah, I think that's that's just a really strong indicator that that's another conversation that needs to be highlighted and elevated and brought to the forefront because it's incredibly important for the longevity of people's mental health. I mean, there are some very serious ramifications for not being able to properly process this kind of trauma. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It really is. It's, you know, suffering on top of trauma. If you don't have the support, if you don't have care, if you don't have resources, I mean, we received very little in terms of like practical things from the hospital or from even our obstetrician's office, you know, a few websites, but kind of like slipped into, you know, our information leaving the hospital. There was no real conversation. Uh, We remember one nurse who was very compassionate at the obstetrician's office when we went back and she just sat with us and was really one of the only, I mean, the we felt supported by our care team, but we didn't feel like people really engaged with the depth of the loss apart from her in terms of sitting there with it. Um, Eventually, and my midwife was out on maternity leave herself. So we didn't actually see her for quite a few months. Um, And then she actually ended up coming over to our home and, and visiting Finley's room and sitting with us in the Finley's garden, which is what we christened the backyard. Um, So we were able to touch base, but yeah, we received very little, like useful resources. And that was really difficult. Now, again, fortunately, because of being academics, we were able to sort things out and find things ourselves. But that's not, you know, most people don't have either those research skills or the time or the energy, right, to do that. So really thinking about like, how can we build networks of support that are visible and can boom, immediately spring into action when someone goes through a loss? I mean, that's such an important 
aspect of grief care in general, and certainly related to perinatal loss that I that I care about in my which work. is which is what led you led you to doing it, right? Because like you were saying, so many people don't have those research skills, and in this world of Doctor Google that we live in, where we're just constantly turning to the internet when we're trying to find out any kind of piece of information, if you don't know how to comb the information that is presented in front of you, if you don't know how to look for different kinds of information, if you don't know how to source it, if you don't understand sourcing, if you don't understand reviewing and the importance of peer review and the importance of um, quality of research and information, I mean, I feel like it's very easy to just get completely derailed. And then you have to think about, I mean, I can't even imagine the blogs and the forums and the websites and pieces of quote unquote internet research that are just full of random strangers, uneducated opinions. And there's got to be a lot to sift through to find really quality tools. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for, for us, we first turned, we didn't even turn to the internet. <laughs> I mean, we went to books. We like, we needed hard cover print in our hands. So we first started with memoirs of loss, uh, mostly mothers um, who had experienced stillbirth or child loss. And then that eventually grew broader in its scope in terms of grief and different, you know, we then became interested in different cultural understandings of grief and grief and death and relationships and spiritual practices. So it really widened, but those early memoirs were really important. One in particular when I was reading, she herself had been a writer. Um, I'm blanking on the name right now, but uh, she had resources in the back. And one was mentioning certificates of stillbirth. And I'm like, what's that? And all, then through my research, I found out that it's very much state to state in terms of issuing a stillbirth certificate. And if we were in Illinois and I looked up, like I had to find the, the state law the statute that provided the information because each state has also different gestational markers for what counts as stillbirth. You know, commonly we talk about stillbirth as the second half of pregnancy after 20 weeks, but there are different designations about what that a stillbirth, you know, what it qualifies as in terms of a certificate. So then I had to make sure, I mean, Finley was full term, but you know, what, what did Illinois require? And then I looked into the department of vital records and then I sent the application and then it ended up not being received and I had to resend it a month or two later. But I mean, this is a lot of like legwork that, I mean, a grieving person, a grieving parent shouldn't have to do, right? So it'd be much better if there were certainly, you know, hospitals, birthing centers, uh, you know, obstetricians, offices, midwifery, like that they had all of this material so that when something happened, and inevitably it will, because this happens much more commonly than most people, I think, think about or realize then they, you know, immediately there can be very tailored to specific resources, not just like, here's a list of 30 websites, but, right. you know, oh, you went through this experience. Here you go. Oh, do you know there's a specific organization that supports ectopic pregnancy loss? Here you go. You know that. And then that way people have those kind of like footholds into finding support for themselves that make it doable. So maybe they do have 10 minutes they can spend, you know, if they're not caring for other children or doing other work tasks. But if they're just at the beginning of the process and completely overwhelmed and grieving and, you know, physically going through postpartum, I mean, it's a lot, it's just, it's too much to ask for, right? So how can we strengthen communities of support, strengthen networks and organizations? Because there actually is a lot out there, but, you know, it's just daunting and, and seemingly impossible. And like you said, you don't want to just be finding yourself in random grief 
chat rooms or, you know, support rooms because they're, we found there's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of resentment and not that that shouldn't be part of the process. But for us, like that's only a, a small part of the process. We were looking for hope and inspiration and lessons and practices. And I think oftentimes if people don't feel supported and don't have other options, they kind of get stuck in this, you know, this is unfair. And why did this happen to me? And again, that these are things that I've said, so I'm not saying that you shouldn't say them, but it doesn't go beyond that. And I think that can be difficult then for that person to think about, well, how do I create a relationship with my child who's dead? If I'm, if I'm really in that, this is unfair mentality, because then it doesn't really lead you into like the next part of a grieving journey. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, man, there's so many important things that you said. I don't even know where to start, but, but I think that that's such an important point is that there is so much, um, anger and, and animosity. And I hate to use the word toxic because like you said, it's, that's a very, those, those emotions are very real and it's a very important part of grieving to feel those feelings, but it can get so the negativity can get so intense when, when you're doing the online investigating. And like you said, that's, that's not a place to stay. It's definitely a place to exist in. And that's for any kind of grief. Anger is a huge part of moving through the grief process. But when you stay there, that's when things get really complicated and can have really significant longer term effects on your life. And that's, I think, such an important part of what it is that you're doing, which is providing people the tools. And you've done the research. You've sat with the books and the research papers. And, you know, you've gone, you've, you've gone above and beyond to gather, to seek out and to sort of hand select and to gather some really important grief processing tools and and you've provided a platform to be able to give people that nurturing and that nourishment as they go through the process so that they can feel all of the feelings and not get stuck in a place that's going to be contraindicative to living your life and moving forward. We never move past, right? But we still have to move in a direction in order to to be able to go back to being human again, which is, I would imagine, I've never experienced it, so I can't say for myself, but I would imagine is a much harder task than it. I mean, it's it's easy to say go going back to being human, right? But I would imagine that putting that into practice is much more complicated. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would put it differently. I wouldn't say going back to being human. I would say it is a human expression, expressive nature of our lives to feel this grief. You know, this is part of what makes us human, that we have these emotions and then we have this communication system within our bodies and with others in a social relationship to share it. Um, I think that is, it's really important to embrace that. I think a lot of people, and understandably so, we're not educated in grief, right? If grief was in our elementary schools, I mean, it is, but if it was talked about, if children were given a forum, if grief was like a subject that you went through your formal education actively discussing and thinking about and reflecting on, you know, how much more would be better prepared as a society to process like, I don't know, a pandemic that has taken hundreds of thousands (laughs) of lives and that's impacting us in so many ways. And, you know, as one example, and then of course, individual losses that we have and will experience in our life. So I think actually 
stepping into the grief is really important as a first step, like letting it wash over you or wipe you out. Now, again, there are other commitments people have. So I'm not saying you have like a month to, to really feel it all, but I would encourage everyone to start with feeling it. You know, it's, I think we live in a capitalist society of social media and all of a sudden there's just any number of distractions at our fingertips, right? We can buy things, we can, we can look at other people's accounts, we can do X, Y, and Z to try to like distance ourselves from the feelings, but actually stepping into the feelings is really important and embracing that this is a natural, normal, healthy part of life, I think is key um, as a starting point. And then for, you know, in those first few weeks after Finley died, again, like I said, we turned to writing. And for me, it was more of journaling because I was continuing this journal I'd started to the baby. Um, and for Will, it was much more of putting together like a, almost like a treaty on a treatise on grief uh, that eventually was published and it's called To Grieve. And he starts out by saying, these are instructions for myself. Like I need to be able to come back to this in my grieving journey, which I know will be the rest of my life in order to remember some of these poignant realizations of like the power of love and connection to our son, even though he died, things that it's revealing about, you know, my heart and my priorities to me as I'm going through this early time. And that's kind of, I think our approach to the grief work that we do individually and together is first of all, understanding that we always have to do our own work <laughs> to be there for others, right? You have to be able to kind of pour from a full cup or you know, I mean, we were just starting by talking about sleep and children and it might not always be full, but how can you kind of tend to your tender areas and sensitive brokenness in order to shore them up so that you can support others? And so that's a big part of us. Like we think about ourselves in a community of other grieving parents, some of whom we've met and others that we know are out there on this planet. So I think imagining those connections to others, actually making those connections to others in a productive way can be really helpful to start figuring out, like, how do I work with this? What's out there? What have you done? You know, what are the ideas for honoring a child who's died in pregnancy or, in you know, after birth? And start to kind of recognize how to move with and integrate the loss, which, yeah, you're right. I mean, we will never get over. I will never unlose Finley, you know? Right. Um, but now... Uh, but now I'm a parent to him in a different way. And so how can I honor that as part of my journey? Not one that I would have, of course, ever asked for, but this is where I am. And how do I carry that forward? And, you know, yeah, kind of really work with my grief and work with my connections to others in, in a meaningful way. So I'm, I'm still conflicted because I have so many questions and I don't know where to start. I think I want to go back to something that you said quite a few minutes ago, just a, around the fact that this happens more often than we think or than we know. Do you have any kind of like statistical information on loss, on how many people are experiencing this, on how common it is, on who it affects? Yeah. So in terms of the U.S., so I'm... I'm based in the United States. Um, I teach perinatal loss trainings to birth workers and health professionals and um, care providers of all kinds. And, and some of them do come from other countries. So then I tend to try to find some additional information out there. And there are, there's, there is lots of information out there. But in terms of the U.S., uh, which most of my resources kind of start from, you know, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, is a great 
starting point because they have they are keeping statistics, they are tracking information. Uh, so yes, I mean in the U.S., the number for in terms of stillbirth um, and in, is around one in 160 or 166. Kind of depends on what year you're looking at. So you know if we take 160, that's not actually that many. That's not a huge number, right? We're not talking about one in a thousand. We're not talking about one in ten thousand or, or higher, right? Like we all know more than one hundred and sixty people, right? In the world, exactly. Yeah. So what that translates to is roughly twenty three to twenty four thousand babies who are stillborn each year in the U.S. alone. Now that's about the same number as babies who die within the first year of life. So now we're adding another twenty three, twenty four thousand babies. Right. So when we start to add the numbers, we're looking at, you know, thousands of people now in this country alone who are affected by loss. And I'm just doing simple math. But if we if we're losing, if we experience in the United States stillbirth at a rate of 24,000 babies per year, that's 60 something every single day. Mm hmm. That's that's more than one baby per state per day. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. And then that doubles if we're then taking into account uh, newborn and infant loss. Wow. Okay. So right. that's So it really is... It's happening it's all happening the time. more often than we're hearing about. Yes. Yeah. And interestingly, the stillbirth number, you know, again, depending on the year, it hasn't especially the like late term kind of, you know, full term stillbirth. So we're talking really the last several weeks of pregnancy. That number hasn't changed all that much in a long time in the U.S. And interestingly, that again, this number of about one in 160 births, 24,000 babies, that's about it's actually more than 10 times the number of babies who die from SIDS, from sudden infant death syndrome. Now, there's been a big push in the last I mean, certainly before I was thinking about having babies, I remember seeing information about it even, again, before like being really aware of baby-like things or pregnancy things. But there's been a real push with information and, uh, you know, prevention around SIDS. And with stillbirth, you know, there's so many factors, some are known and some are not known, that that number hasn't really changed, which I think is important to, you know, put out there that you know, when we have the medical research and we have preventative practices in place and we have education and resources at different levels of communities and societies, then, right, the number of of deaths can decrease. But with stillbirth, it hasn't been that case. There are lots of organizations uh, across the U.S., I think immediately like Star Legacy Foundation. There are lots of nonprofits who focus on stillbirth, you know, research and support from the medical side. Um, you know, looking into this and doing the work. So I don't mean to say like nobody nobody knows why it is, but that number hasn't really changed and that's really important. And it's also really important to note that there's disparity in loss. So again, when I teach my perinatal loss trainings, one of the first things I talk about is race, racial disparity in terms of who's experiencing these losses. Now, anyone can experience stillbirth. So this is not to say that one community is like exempt but in terms of the U.S., when you start looking around geographically, you have higher stillbirth numbers in the South as opposed to the North. And Black mothers 
or black birthing people, pregnant people are more than twice as likely to experience stillbirth as opposed as compared to Hispanic and white mothers or white, you know, pregnant people. Right. So then we start looking into other factors, you know, we're like, okay, so there are certain communities that are disproportionately being affected. And why is that? And of course, you know, there are also, I, I think, in terms of an awareness of racial disparity, in terms of racial bias, looking at, you know, historically in racist kind of elements to institutions like medical, the medical world in which we live, you know, there are, there is attention being brought more and more to that and looking at these disparities and why is it um, in order to bring this gap down. So that's encouraging, but I think we still have a ways to go. Um, and in terms of, of black mater maternal health, you know, black mothers are themselves also three to four times more likely to die in preg pregnancy related or birth-related experiences. So, you know, we're talking about infant mortality. We're also talking about maternal mortality. And so I think that's just an important thing to keep in mind um, about who's being impacted by this. And I'm heartened by things like in, I've been watching a little bit in Congress, the um, yeah. Black Maternal Health <laughs> Momnibus, yeah. right? This, that they're trying, they're working on passing these kind of putting together these individual laws. So there definitely is on a policy level, on a legal level, on a medical level, there's improvement being made. Um, but we still, you know, we still have quite a road to travel to actually get to more equitable numbers there. Yeah, we do have quite a road to travel. And we have, and, and just to start really paying attention and diving into the research, I mean, the fact that I'm sorry, I'm going to have to have you repeat that number of how of the statistics on sudden infant death versus the statistics on on stillbirth. What's the discrepancy there? So the, the numbers around stillbirth and infant death within that first year. So again, we're talking around 24,000 babies in each category a year. That's 10 times more than the number of deaths that occur from SIDS. Right. And so my point is that we have a lot of attention that's been brought to SIDS over the years. And so medical, you know, interventions and preventative tips have been instrumental in actually bringing that number down. But in terms of stillbirth and infant loss within that first death that are not related to SIDS, you know, we still have like quite, quite a lot of work to do to actually figure out what are the ways that we can we can decrease that number significantly? Well, and I even think back to like as a child, my understanding of each of these categories and my first brush with understanding SIDS was, I mean, late 80s, early 90s. I was in elementary school and um, a boy in my class, his baby sister had died from SIDS. And I remember that's the first time I learned about it. I didn't learn about stillbirth until oh, I don't know, high school, maybe it was, it was definitely not, um, not something that I don't know if it was like, this is not something we talk about around children. You know, I don't, I'm not sure what the is specifically in my household, what the psychology was behind it, but it's just so interesting because I even think about now, if I'm, if I'm looking at, if I'm researching any kind of, um, baby products or looking to make a baby shower registry, everything, not everything, but you see it everywhere in, in modern advertising with like, this product is designed to help reduce the chance of SIDS and, or this product has been banned or outlawed or changed or updated in order to reduce the statistics of sudden infant death. We, we see it's, it's used in marketing. It's used kind of 
at us in the in the pregnancy and parenting world quite often, which is interesting because we don't it's avoiding avoiding stillbirth or avoiding, you know, that that um, early loss that's that we don't categorize a sudden infant death that's not talked about. That's not marketed towards us. And I'm not necessarily saying it should be. It's weird that we use any of those things as a marketing tool. And I understand why we do it. And also, you know, it's like, you're, you're absolutely right. There's so much awareness around sudden infant death, but, but there's not awareness around, around stillbirth in the same way. And to that point, why are we not doing more investigative research to find out what's contributing? And I think that goes into a much larger conversation around investigative research in pregnancy and postpartum in general. Because it is very hard ethically to do controlled studies, right? We we run into a huge challenge when we talk about how to do a double-blind, peer-reviewed, controlled study of anything relating to pregnancy and postpartum, because that has to mean that you are intentionally putting one group of pregnant or postpartum people at risk. And that's ethically, obviously, a very difficult situation to, to manufacture. But why aren't we taking the research that we have, taking the statistics that we have, taking the information that we have, and actually diving deeper into it on a larger scale and trying to find answers on a larger scale. And I don't I don't assume that you have all the information around that. I just think it's a really interesting conversation about what we choose to create awareness around and what is less talked about. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've I've connected with several organizations, nonprofits, and and others, you know, and many of whom are started by grieving parents who have experienced loss, whether it's early pregnancy loss, recurrent pregnancy loss, late, you know, stillbirth or early infant death. Um, and there definitely are different tracks. So there are some organizations that do put attention into medical studies and, you know, really looking at research and really looking to, you know, decrease the incident rates for these, you know, devastating losses. And that's an important piece of the puzzle, right? So things like people talking about latent pregnancy, you know, being more consistent about doing count kicks, no kick counts, kick counts, right? So that you are aware of your baby's activity level and that kind of dispelling the idea that, well, towards the end of pregnancy, baby just slows down and that's normal. And people are saying, no, actually baby should you know, kind of be at their normal activity levels, which is going to, of course, vary from from baby to baby. Um, but when you notice a change or when you feel that intuitive, like, hmm, something feels off, to follow that impulse and to reach out to care providers. So that's an important piece of the information. Now, of course, how that's going to be received by care providers is another part, right? I just have that same thought of like, then we have to have the conversation about medical gaslighting, which is like a Yes. And I, I mean, I experienced with my second child, Phelan, we had moved from Illinois to Asheville, North Carolina, where I live now. And, you know, the midwives that I saw here and everyone said, if you have any concerns, just come in, come in, right? Like you lost a child. There was no reason this happens, just come in. And there was a time where like, I didn't feel the Phelan moving so much, you know, late in pregnancy. And I did the orange juice. I mean, I did all the things that you're supposed to do. Time went by and I reached out to the clinic and I called and first their answering service answered and said, well, you know, they don't really like to be disturbed in their lunch hour. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, okay. And then Will said, we're going, just get in the car. We're going. So we went and they had just come out of lunch. And this nurse who met us seemed exasperated took us into the small room and was like, oh, well, you don't have an appointment. So I have to see what the schedule looks like. Now I immediately start to feel like I'm a burden, right? Here right. I'm making this woman have to work harder and am I inconveniencing the staff? And, and 
we both, you know, even as educated as we are, and we are white, you know, late thirties, like we have these certain privileges, we still feel at the mercy of the system. And so I'm starting to cry and I'm like, but my first baby died. You know, I had to say it and it still didn't change her attitude all that much. Eventually I was brought, you know, and I was able to do a non-stress test and those technicians were amazing and supportive, but man, did I feel like such a problem. And I am a grieving mother who held my dead son. And that shouldn't have to be something I have to bring into a conversation in order to get care. Right. You shouldn't have to justify the fact that you are doing, you are trying to take your baby's outcomes into your own hands. That's not something that you should have to like explain away. No. And then again, thinking of the disproportionate impact on communities of color. I mean, level of mistrust and are you sure, you know, oh, I think you're exaggerating. I mean, that they absolutely legitimately experience, you know, within the system of people not trusting them or the information or dismissing their concerns. And there are so many stories around this. So that's an important element too. So how do we get all the providers on board with, you know, taking these concerns seriously when they are brought to their attention? Like that's another piece of the puzzle. So there's that whole medical infrastructure that really needs like a good like foundational <laughs> education in compassionate care and which is not to say that there are not compassionate care providers but like as a system to to work together in a better way to support those who are pregnant and postpartum and so <laughs> they're suddenly patronizing to you right and it is the disparity based on the color of your skin is significant you know if we go back to the conversations around, oh my God, I'm totally blanking on his name, but the the gynecologist that used to perform experimental procedures on his slaves and be, and stemmed from that from decades and decades and decades ago is this concept that is still rife throughout the medical system that black people don't feel pain. Mm -hmm. And that, and doctors literally have said that. I have heard medical professionals say that. And it's based in nothing other than a man who wanted to perform experimental procedures on his slaves and decided that he was going to do it and decided that it was okay because he had decided for them that they didn't feel pain. And now it's just like this, this quote unquote common piece of knowledge that we have in modern medicine. And it's like, that, I mean, there's so much of that rampant misinformation. The other example I have is my husband and I were watching, um, I don't remember the name of the documentary on Netflix, but it's a documentary about death. And this woman is talking about sort of having these premonitions that she knew she was going to hemorrhage out in childbirth. And her husband, as they're talking about it, as they're reflecting on it, her husband was like, oh, you know, I just thought it was like stereotypical pregnancy hysteria. And I was like... <laughs> We have decided, right? And that's also a common trope in modern society is that like, oh, pregnant women just get hysterical. And 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 perhaps it's perceived that way, but do you know why we get hysterical? Because no one's listening to us. And that and the outcome of that mentality, as we're seeing based on these statistics, those outcomes can be severely detrimental because no one's listening to pregnant people. And in, and so we have to like flip the script, not just when it comes to modern medicine, but modern society's perception of what pregnant people are doing, feeling, experiencing, how we are prioritizing or not prioritizing their health, right? There's so many layers to it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, in this country, our medical system is built through a patriarchal, racist ideology. I mean, it just is embedded. So yet you, you know, you've given examples and it's also, I think about recently, I remember re seeing a, 
how many, and I don't remember exactly if it was a pharmaceutical, I don't remember the precise medical thing that it was, but that studies were only conducted on men because it was believed that women's women were just inherently distrustful because of the hormonal changes. So that, (laughs) you know, pharmaceuticals and procedures are not actually being, you know, tested and, and verified through application to female, you know, sex bodies. And the detrimental impact of that, if you have certain things that are then how do you know how this is going to impact, right? So, I mean, it's really important to recognize that. It's really important to say that it is real and those who experience discrimination. And of course, we have also economic discrimination with, you know, lower income folks and any number of systems that are relational and at work. Um, But yes, that is undergirding all of this. So this, and then of course, popular culture, like movies of, you know, pregnancy, you know, whether it's about birth and the kind of drama of the water breaking, or it's about the hormonal fluctuations. Of, I mean, there's just, it's not doing a good service, right, to actually the individuals in our communities who are going through a, you know, natural experience that our bodies, that many bodies were built for, um, in order to kind of disvalue or devalue these, these thoughts and concerns and feelings that, you know, are just so important. So, yeah, I think that's really important to acknowledge in all of this. And then of course, with loss and grief, where there is a, you know, it's really important for these emotions to be expressed and for people to, you know, use terms like hysterical, which in itself is history is the the term is problematic. And then to have that apply to either someone who's pregnant or someone who's grieving as just kind of easily dismissed because they're too emotional. I mean, that's, I mean, those roots go deep, you know, into the problematic landscape that we're talking about. But yeah, I think it's important to just, you know, perpetually bring them up and make people more mindful of them. And so when you're interacting with a system, you're interacting with a whole history of uh, history of how it was built. Uh, and and that can make you feel really, you know, devalued and dehumanized and out of your depths, you know, because it wasn't meant to really support your individual body. Right. And I think that's, that's, oh, I just remembered his name. Oh, it was um, J. Marion Sims was the, the mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. and that was almost 200 years ago. And we are still operating in modern day society based on his justification of why he was performing on his slaves. Anyway, yeah, not the, not the main issue, but still, but it's important, right. To understand where this all comes from. But I think that mm-hmm. what you were just talking about, I mean, it feeds into how we perceive grieving people and pregnant people, like you said, as a whole, and maybe, I mean, I guess this is just speculation on my part. I would love to hear your thoughts on it, but like, do you think this also contributes to how support people, those of us who do care for um, the emotional outcome of what these parents are going through, what the, how they're grieving, but those of us in positions of support, do you think that those societal norms that we've created contribute to how people are find themselves able to or not able to support in a in a productive way? You know, I think that this is also like a multifaceted question that probably has very complicated multiple answers. But if you take into consideration how we perceive pregnant people, how we perceive women in general when it comes to processing emotion, um, the word hysteria, how commonly it's been used as a label to just decide that because a person is feeling something, they're they're hysterical, right? And 
even people, even support people who are trying to support someone who is grieving, even when they have the best of intentions. I think there's on a subconscious level, there's sort of all of that language and all of that um, stereotype that we have ingrained in ourselves as a, as a modern society. And I, I wonder if that comes into play and in how people are able to support those grieving parents. Yeah, I mean, these are great questions and definitely related. I mean, I think in terms of grief in general, uh, like I was saying earlier, we're not, it is not part of our, in most families, in most communities, of course, I cannot speak for everyone. Um, and I am a, a, a white woman, cisgendered woman. So like I'm speaking from a particular perspective, but this is not something that's really taught, modeled, you know, understood <laughs> as we're growing up. And so kind of like childbirth, if it's not something you're ever exposed to, except through movies or, you know, kind of quote unquote horror stories of things, then you, like myself, felt incredibly fearful about the enterprise that was going to unfold uh, with my first child. And I think grief is the same way. We're not socially at a young age and growing up in a culture where grief is openly talked about. I mean, a lot of things that happened when after Finley died was we learned of family members who had experienced loss. So Will learned that his father's mother had had a son, James, who lived for a year and died, who was in between Will's dad and his older brother. Wow we had never heard about James and he had lived for about a year. So it wasn't even, it wasn't a case of, you know, late pregnancy or, or stillbirth. Or, and Will's like, oh, you know what, when I think about my grandmother at these times in her life, wow, I really wonder, you know, like he then kind of could then understand certain things that he saw as a child in his grandmother that likely related to her grief and her maybe inability to express grief um, because of, the day because of family commitments, etc. So that's one thing. I think we start to become aware of generationally and ancestrally, like the grief that was repressed or suppressed or discarded or disregarded. And so that if that's kind of the lessons that we're getting as we're growing up, like you don't talk about it, you don't look at it, you don't feel it, you get on with life, you have another kid, you get married again, like we're not then really sitting in that the pain of loss that again for me is part of being a human on this planet. So so I think that's at work. So I think that we're not necessarily getting like the lessons or even thinking about grief as any has any positive element to it. So for us in our grief work we see it as an invitation. It's painful and it's difficult and again I do I do not wish being a grieving parent on anyone. And yet when you find yourself in that circumstance, what can you make with it? What can you do with it? How can you connect to others? So I think, yes, on the, ma the macro level, there's that lack of like <laughs> education and awareness around it as we're growing up. I think then, understandably, people are afraid that they're going to do or say the wrong thing when someone is grieving. We've heard this a lot. Um, and what I think can end up happening, which is potentially more damaging, uh, certainly in our experience and in the many, many grieving parents we've met over the last seven years, is that people don't say anything and people just go away and they just cross the street when you're walking by because they don't, they feel so ill-equipped 
and or they feel their own grief start to come up in ways that are uncomfortable for them because maybe they were never given the opportunity to express what they were going through. Then they're dealing with like their own heaviness and baggage on top of trying to show up for someone else. And like, oof, that is really tough. So those kinds of things happen. Um, We talk a lot about, we've been working on this book about creative grief work, and we have a chapter focused on language because a lot of people also say when something happens that there are no words. And while I understand that, yes, this is kind of a huge impactful event in which a Hallmark card is not going to suffice. But actually, we really, we argue that actually you can use language in really intentional ways. If you really think about what you want to express to that person, like, I'm here for you. I'm sitting with you. I will be with you however long this process is. Or I'm going to use your baby's name at whatever point they may have died. You know, maybe it was two weeks into pregnancy and that person already decided the name of their child. Like I'm going to use that name. So I'm going to use language and my ability to connect in order to offer whatever I can. And that can be incredibly healing to someone that someone is showing up. Right. And also we say, just say to that person, I I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I want you to know, I love you and I'm here. I mean, you can then admit I don't have the right words or I'm not sure of the words yet, or I don't want to upset you, but I'm here. So I think showing up is really important as a support person at whatever stage. I also say this all the time that in my mind, whether the person was pregnant for five minutes, whether the pregnancy was 40 years ago, like there's always an opportunity to show up. Uh, And that pregnancy and that loss and that child or whoever, however that person understands that experience, use that language, use that reflective, you know, intentional language, and then just show up. So even if you have, and I've met so many people who are like, oh, I didn't know this. You know, my sister or my friend or my aunt or somebody lost a baby or a child 10 years ago. And I wish I knew this idea of grief now. And I say, if they're still alive, you can reach out to them and say, oh, I'm really reflecting on this. And I wish I had done this for you. Or I wish I had showed up. I want to do it now. Like there's never a timeline where if you haven't done it by this point, you're lost. You know what I mean? Like that person will continue grieving. And so you can still show up as a support, even if that happened a long time ago, or you felt like maybe you didn't do the right thing by that person, you can still show up. And so I I really hope people feel a little empowered to like keep reaching out and keep offering their support and their love and their care. And I'm listening and, you know, and just, I think that's really important. And that starts to like repair some of those social damage or social, you know, breakage that happens in grief when, when people just kind of say, I can't deal with it. It's too much. It's too scary. And they kind of, you know, look the other way. They're probably still carrying some sense of guilt or shame about that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think it's never too late. And I think there are lots of ways to express love and care and lots of, you know, ways to keep doing that work that, that that person will need. Yeah, we're exactly right. Because at at any given point at in that person's life, they're going to need something because, you know, like you're saying, it's never too late because for that grieving person, that grief never goes away. You have, you enter different stages, you go through different phases of life. It comes, it goes, it waxes, it wanes. You know, it's never, it's not a consistent upward trajectory. But, you know, I think about 
Um, in, in the first episode in this series, I shared my pregnancy loss story and I was, um, you understand it differently, right? Like I, I learned when I miscarried, I learned that my, my mother-in-law had experienced a miscarriage and, you know, it's, it's easy when you've never experienced it to go, oh, well, it's okay. Cause she has two grown sons and they're healthy. And so she's fine. She's got kids. And it's easy to say that from the outside, but when you, once you have gone through it, you understand that no matter what the circumstances around it are, it doesn't matter that I have two healthy daughters. It doesn't matter that she has two healthy sons, right? You still lost a baby. And that is something that you never, ever forget about. You might move beyond it, but it doesn't just suddenly become a part of your past that's not a piece of you, right? Like there's always going to be that those thoughts of what if, and not like what if, as in like, what if I would have stayed with my high school sweetheart? What if I would have, you know, chosen a different major in college, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there are those what ifs. And then there's the what if when you lose a child, that what if never, never goes away. And I'm only, you know, three and a half years past my miscarriage. So I, I know that it's still fresh for me in comparison to other people, but I know that 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 voice in the back of your head that goes, what would she be like today? Or he, right? What would, what would, what would I have named him? What would he look like? What would his favorite color be? What would, how would he walk? What would his laugh be like? Right? Like those, those thoughts of, of wanting to understand and have that connection to your child, even though your child is no longer, you know, with you on this earth, that never goes away. And so to be able to go to that person like you were saying, it doesn't matter when it is. It doesn't matter if it's 20 years later, 40 years later to be able to say, wow, that happened. And, and I understand that I wasn't there at the time or whatever, but like, I'm, I'm still here for you. I'm still holding that space for you. Even if it's not top of mind, even if it's not affecting your every single day in the way that maybe it used to, it's still something that is a consistent part of you. That's never going to go away. And I see that and I acknowledge it and I'm here for it. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I mean, it is the rest of your life. We don't we don't wake up one morning and like start over, right? So any losses that we've experienced, any trauma, any pain, like we are carrying that in our bodies forward. I mean, our bodies are incredibly receptive entities and, you know, of course we have memories and you know, an imagination and all of this too, but like we're it's stored in us somewhere. Um and so I think that's really important to recognize that yeah, there is no, there's no point where, yeah, you're, you're over it. I just, I think that that is one of the the kind of falsehoods of grief that like we can recover from or get over or get past that doesn't just doesn't exist. I mean, my five-year-old Phelan just started kindergarten and in April when we went to his little like kindergarten orientation, I mean, I just wept when he was in the classroom with the teacher doing like the little assessment because I, I I'm thinking I should have already done this with Finley. This should not be my first entry in a school. So all of these kind of big and kind of seemingly less significant moments that we go through life. And that's, you know, I was fortunate to be able to have two children that it's going to impact how we experience that. My third son, Ren, has a congenital heart condition that we discovered in pregnancy. So already having lost a child and now finding out at 20 weeks that my baby has a heart condition who would require heart surgeries the fact that I'd already lost a child, like infused that experience with new waves of grief and loss, even though the diagnosis, the prognosis was not that he would die. So, I mean, this, our experiences of loss are going to shade and color and impact 
everything that we have moving forward. And I think for support people to be as honest as you can with yourself and whatever you've gone through in your life, which is impacting you, you know, and then to be able to show up even in spite of, or because of what you've gone through to say, you know, I don't have all the words, or this is a little triggering for me or what have you. And I want to do this for you. And I want to be here for you. Um, and I always encourage people when they want to be really kind of good quote, quote unquote, good supporters, you know, it can be so overwhelming in grief. So when someone says like, I'm here, let me know if you need anything. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what I need. I need my baby. I need my baby. Yeah. <laughs> can you give me my baby? No. Okay. Well then I guess I'll try to call you one day if I can, you know, but if you can right. localize your support, so you're like, how is your heart doing today? How are you feeling at this moment? I want to hear, you know, are you thinking, have you been thinking about your baby this morning? Or what would you like to share with me about your child? Or what were your hopes for your child, you know, and or like practical things. I would like to bring you a meal. Can I send you some flowers? Here's some herbal tea that I found. It's in the mail for you. I mean, just so the person doesn't have to do the extra work of the emotional labor of yeah. like, okay, let me think about what I need. Let me think about who can help, you know? So to be a good support person, I think you want to tune into that person. If you know them well, then maybe you know something that would give them some comfort. You know, maybe they're a person who wants to take a bath or wants to go for a walk or, you know, needs coffee. Um, like what practical supports can you offer? Because that can be really important is that you're feeling nurtured and supported and cared for. And if you don't know that person all that well, then, you know, you can certainly still think about like I'm thinking about, you know, say doulas who maybe have clients who lose a baby and maybe they haven't gotten to know them all that well, or someone in like a community or neighbor, for instance, you know, there are still things like, uh, I mean, first of all, there's tons of like grief gift packages and ideas and things available online. It doesn't take a whole lot of searching to find. So even if you're like, I'm so bad with offering tangible support, like a lot of people are thinking about this. So that's out there. But, you know, doing a simple thing, if they have other kids, can I, can I take your kids out for an hour so you can be by yourself or, you know, just little things that can be huge to that person to feel supported and understood and validated and to know that they're cared for and like, and that you're not going to go anywhere either. You know, you're, you're not like, here's a six month offer of support. And then after that, it expires. <laughs> you're like, I'm here yeah. for the long haul. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, our doula every year around Finley's birthday in June, she we're in touch with her, you know, to, to, for that long term experience. I just think it can make such a difference and it can alleviate some of the suffering that that person is feeling from feeling out of place in society or that most people don't want to talk about it or right. If you know that there are a few people that you have, oof, that can be really, really, really healing in and of itself. Yeah. And I want to go back to something that you said about the trauma, because, you know, in, in doula work, we do a lot of um, learning about trauma informed care. And I think that that's something that is largely missing when it comes to sort of the general population, when it comes to being able to support someone who's going through grief is that there are so many different layers of trauma. And I would imagine, and maybe I'm projecting and putting myself in your shoes, but I would imagine when you're, when you're pregnant with your third child and you're learning that they have a heart condition, the amount of trigger that is caused by your previous trauma of losing your first child. I mean, I would imagine it, it completely changes the way that your, your picture is painted of what it means to be a parent of a baby with a heart condition, because 
you already know what it's like to lose a baby. And so you, you will handle everything differently than someone who has not lost a baby who maybe has had their child diagnosed with a heart condition. You know, there's, we have to, and we, we talk about this all the time on this podcast about bioindividuality. Every single person's body has a different experience and we cannot treat everyone the same. And when it comes to trauma-informed care, which is, which is truly how all of us should be handling anyone who is grieving any traumatic experience, mm. we cannot mm-hmm. say you should be grieving this way because of X, Y, Z, right? We cannot say, or I mean, I hate to even repeat this, but it's unfortunately incredibly common for parents that lose babies for people to say, you can just have another, right? Like, don't worry. Here's, we're going to fix it. We're going to cover it up. We're going to make it go away. Here's a solution to just like replace your grief with something different. Instead of looking at how that trauma not only affects you, but affects your entire life. And maybe for us, for the support person, how that trauma affects us as well, right? Like it's scary. It is scary for me to put myself in the shoes of someone who has lost their baby because I don't ever want to experience what that feels like. And, and yes, we could label that a selfish sentiment, but like who wants to experience that? Right. But at the same time, you know, there is a balance between not wanting to put yourself in someone's shoes and also acknowledging that what they're going through is horrible and being able to be there for them without, you know, taking it all upon yourself. And I, I know that that's so much easier said than done, but it's so important that we are able to show up for and support people through grief. And I just, I, I think it's so personal to me because I see so many people that are grieving so many different things. I have a, um, an old friend from college who is, who has a young daughter with autism and she's constantly posting on social media about how she's you know, lacking in a support system and friends and family and all of the people that should be there for her are not there for her. And that's, I mean, I know we're, we're kind of getting off topic a little bit, but it's, I think, speaking to a larger conversation around the fact that like, yes, these uncomfortable things happen, but, but they happen and they're happening to real people that we love and care about. And being able to find a way to support people through it is incredibly important to everyone's side of the relationship, to my side of the relationship, to your side of the relationship, to grandma's side of the relationship, right? Like there's, we, we have to come together for our people, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, yeah, lots of things that I could (laughs) dovetail into that. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I think first of all, widening the understanding of grief as being more inclusive than only the death of a loved one, the death of love, you know, whether it's a person or a, you know, pet animal companion, but that illness, that divorce, that, you know, uh, finding out that someone either yourself or a loved one or your baby has an incurable disease or um, or that someone is going to live with significant challenges, you know, whether it's physical, emotional, mental um, health uh, situations in, you know, a society that doesn't necessarily want to make any kinds of accommodations, right? Or include them or think differently about what what living means. So, you know, when you referenced me finding out about Ren's heart condition, I mean, I was grieving his heart condition in addition to grieving the death of his brother. So I think about that, like parents, pregnant people who get diagnoses either during pregnancy or after the baby arrives, that isn't a terminal diagnosis, but it's something that will impact them for the rest of their lives. And that is a legitimate source of grief. 
So I think anytime we can expand and broaden our understanding of grief, it reduces the amount of the people call disenfranchised grief. Like I have this grief, but it's not noticed or made visible in society. So now I'm have extra burden because I'm isolated by this experience that other people don't think counts as much as the death of a parent or the death of a child. So I think that's really important to consider that with parenting, you know, pregnancy, parenting, postpartum, all of these losses or, you know, a future that was imagined that is impossible now for any number of reasons, that there can be real grief attached to that. And I think anytime we can say, yes, this is grief or this counts, or we might need to be that voice for someone to like affirm that they're going through this thing that they did not anticipate and it's really painful and difficult. That's really important too, right? That we can express what's going on and we have someone who's able to kind of show that back to us. And then link to that support person, as you're saying, it, yes, it is scary for that doula or nurse or any number of people. And again, I'm thinking now specifically more in the perinatal world. And I do this, I teach a, a loss course as part of a full spectrum doula training. I've done it twice this year. And so I have all these kind of like wide-eyed, eager, compassionate, hardworking doulas. And I'm like, listen, when you talk about your birth plan, <laughs> you need to somehow work in a conversation about in the case of death, because it might happen. And I heard a story from someone who was talking to a childbirth educator who had been doing work for years and a couple lost a baby. I don't remember if it was in birth, you know, like my experience or just after, but the dad said to the woman in all like complete honesty, you never said this could happen. Yeah. And so she said from that moment on, she always mentioned the possibility of death you know, so that parents feel empowered with what choices can you make? You know, can you, can you take your baby home? Do you want to do a home funeral? Do you like things that people just don't even realize are options. So I think as difficult as it is for those support people, like you're saying, like yourself, like you don't want to imagine the worst, but anytime you can do the research and be resourced and prepared and feel at least somewhat more confident in being able to hold space for that person, like that's going to make their situation better. And then you need to do your work of like, you need to have a support person for yourself, right? right. Like you need to have a, a partner or a friend or a colleague or a therapist that you can say, oh my gosh, I went, I was with my client when they found out their baby died. And then I had to be, that was incredibly awful. And you know, like you need to have your backup too in place so that you can do the work you need to heal so that you can then show up for the next person, right? Like that's the, that, the, the cycle of healing. Yeah. Um, I, I introduce this term witnessing when I teach these pregnancy loss trainings that, you know, we move from witnessing where someone is predominantly seen, which is important, of course, to be seen, but we move to witnessing so that we are a fully embodied presence when that person is going through something or has gone through something tragic or heartbreaking or what have you. So how can we be the best witness to that person? And that means really having an open heart, you know, and an open mind and sitting with whatever comes. And then again, you have to do that work to process what you have witnessed uh, in the aftermath. I like that. Witnessing. So that, so that, right. So that we are there with holding space. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> like, I feel like we could have this conversation for six more hours. So I'm trying to figure out how to like <laughs> tailor us, how to lead us into the end of the episode, but also address all the things. Right. Um, but I think it's really interesting how you were talking about making sure that you have these conversations with expecting parents, because, you know, there is, there is that 
fine line of like not wanting to cause more anxiety during pregnancy, which is a real thing. And especially in the modern world that we live in, where we have access to all the information and all the criticisms and all the things and the do this and don't do that. And here's how you, here's how you're going to plan to be the perfect pregnant person. And here's how you're going to plan to have the perfect birth. Right. And we don't, we don't talk about what to do. We don't make a death plan. We make a birth plan. We say, oh, you know, I want, I want to wear this. I want to have these cute matching mommy and baby outfits for, you know, immediately once the baby's born. And I want to, you know, I want to labor this way. And this is how I do or don't want to handle pain management, right? We, we plan all those things, but it's so interesting to think about because as parents, we do have to plan for the worst when it comes to us, right? We create wills. We have life insurance policies. We have to think about what happens if we die but we never talk about thinking about what happens if the baby dies. That's not a part of the conversation. And it's so interesting and not something I thought about until you brought it up. Like I, I had never thought about sitting down as a doula, sitting down with my client and saying, okay, what are we going to do if this baby doesn't make it through, through delivery? Uh, It's not a thought that has ever crossed my mind, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's statistically common enough that we need to be making these conversations as hard as they are always going to be. We're never going to make the conversation easier, but we have to make the conversations more accessible so that in the situation you don't feel blindsided. I mean, I, I know what it's like to be both a doula in a hospital setting and a birthing person in a hospital setting. And I know what it's like to know how much information and how many options are not being presented to you. I fully understand that side of it, but I have no idea if I were to lose a baby in childbirth, I have, I would have no idea where to even begin to understand what I do and don't have rights to, you know, it's, those are things that have never crossed my mind. Yeah. And that's, that's just, I mean, that's like a whole new chapter into (laughs) managing childbirth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really important. I mean, if anyone is listening right now who is a doula or wanting to be a doula or a support person in any way, like do your research. I mean, find out what's available. What are hospital policies in your area? What are local policies, protocols? Also thinking about cost. I mean, this is something that I talk about too. Like it can be expensive. You know, there might be funeral homes and places that it can be pretty expensive to bury a baby if that's what you choose. We we had Finley cremated and the funeral home did the cremation at no cost. That's part of their policy for a baby. We then purchased his urn, but like know what's available in terms of access and resources, because if you know, you're not expecting, of course, an outcome of a baby dying, and then all of a sudden you have incurred these expenses, you know, that can be really difficult on again on top of the emotional pain that you're going through. Um, I'm on the board of directors of Stillborn and Infant Loss Support, which is Maryland-based, um, a really amazing organization founded by a woman, Sadija Smiley, who herself lost a baby, uh, her first daughter in the end of pregnancy 17 years ago. Um, And one of the things they did was create a burial and cremation fund for families in their community who don't have those funds available, you know? So they work with the funeral home and with the hospital to make sure that the um, funds are available and distributed. So, I mean, that's an incredibly important, practical, logistical thing to know about. Um, And you're right. These conversations are scary. (laughs) Again, I see the eyes of these doulas (laughs) online and my trainings are like, oh, my gosh, but what if they then don't want to hire me? And I say, I say a few things. I say, first of all, there probably is at some point a thought that something might happen to the baby. Right. You're probably not the first person that will ever present the notion to a pregnant person. 
So, and they might be really worriers, like they might be very anxious during pregnancy or might have health issues. And so maybe it is something they're already actively thinking about. I think two, present examples. Like what if you show birth plans that just have a section? Oh, here's a, here's a, I wanted to show you an example. In case of a NICU stay, this is what I want. In case of death, this is what I want. And then you're just kind of showing that as a model. Um, and then I tell them, you know, practice, practice having this conversation, like find a doula buddy or find a friend, or even if you know someone who's pregnant, who would be up for this conversation and practice it so that you don't feel like you're shaking by even bringing up the possibility that, you know, deaths do happen to babies. And I want to make sure that you feel empowered to make decisions that feel right for you. You know, you don't want to be the one who's kind of like teeth chattering about this. So how can you become more confident and comfortable? around these conversations about death and grief. So that like you're saying, you're not that like I was person who now is going through this trauma and all of a sudden has to figure out like what I'm going to do with my baby's remains, you know? So, so yes, I say have courage. It's hard work and it's hard work. And if you want to be a support person, I, first of all, thank you on behalf of all grieving parents that you want to do this work and then do your research and practice. Yes, 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 yes. I'm taking notes for myself <laughs> as we're talking too. <laughs> so, I mean, you, it seems like you provide just a really wonderful compilation of knowledge for kind of various different kinds of people, for birth workers, for medical professionals, for expecting parents. Can you just give us a rundown of what you do, where we can find you, all of the various different support services that you provide and educational services that you provide and how people can get connected with what it is that you're doing. Yes. So four years ago, my husband, Will, and I started Inviting Abundance. And we really wanted to create something that didn't exist, which was a place where grief work, education and healing, and specifically uh, Will is a Reiki teacher and practitioner, so Reiki energy work can come together. So thinking about the importance of learning and growth and healing in different capacities. And from Inviting Abundance, we kind of grew these different offerings through these different tracks of grief, Reiki, and education. And things have just really grown organically. We so I have some, there are some ongoing things that we offer. So I facilitate a grief pen pal network, which is really about learning about grief and learning by connecting to another griever. Um, I've been doing that for about a year and a half just before COVID started. And I give prompts. And so it's a kind of a creative way to work with grief and to connect with someone and to like physically write letters. You know, if you're physically able to write letters, other accommodations can be made for if you're not. So that's an ongoing thing. I take in cohorts every few months and match grievers up. And so that's been a really, really powerful experience. I also teach a, an online self-paced grief mapping class. So for folks who are interested in kind of getting a new perspective on their grief and actually working with their hands, and you don't have to be like a, a visual artist to do this. I mean, I say, if you have a pencil and paper, great. <laughs> and if you have crayons and markers, great. Um, but it's a way to kind of like map out your grief and see it uh, from new angles and to work with it. So that's ongoing. We also do, um, we we call it a create, creative grief mentorship. So for folks who are interested in working kind of personally through their grief, um, they kind of sign up for a package and Will and I work together. So we kind of brainstorm, we meet with the person, we get to know them. And then we're like, we make a plan for them, like almost a, like a mini curriculum 
to work with their grief, depending on who they are and what their interests are, their hobbies or what their goals are with grief. And then we also have uh, things set aside that we do once or twice a year. So we have a four-week creative grief workshop where we get a small group together who want kind of a new way, of, again, of working with their grief and thinking about it and so that we give some prompts and do activities. Uh, we have this October, we've started and we'll do it, offer it again in the winter, um, a six-week grief immersion class for this is both for people who are grieving, but really more for folks who we say grief work, grief immersion for death workers. And by that, we mean death doulas and grief support people and funeral home directors, hospice folks, those who work with those who are dying or who have died or with grievers and are really looking for broader perspectives. So we're you know moving away from the five stages of grief. We're moving away from you know kind of a timeline of grief. You know, you go through the first year and then things are like X. We're really thinking about social and ecological and um, kind of embodied ways to think through and move through grief. So that's something that we'll also offer once or twice a year. And then there are other things. I mean, there's a lot. Our website has a lot. We have we have a podcast that we recorded 10 episodes of called To Grieve, really thinking about creative expressions of grief. We have blogs. We've been on several podcasts and all, all of our writing and you know resources are there. Um, and then Will does... Reiki sessions, in-person and distance Reiki. And that's, we've, he's worked with a lot of grievers who have found a lot of awareness and kind of intuitive healing um, by doing, engaging in this kind of energy work. So, and then there are other things, but yeah, so invitingabundance.net is our website. And then we're on Facebook. We're even more active on Instagram at Inviting Abundance. Um, I started doing this weekly I call it a grief share and connect. So asking a prompt and trying to kind of connect people in thinking about how we grieve and how we might grieve together, um, particularly at different times of the year, uh, just to make it, you know, really kind of connect with the, the earth, with one another and with ourselves. So, and we're always looking for collaborations. So actually a couple of folks who have taken my perinatal loss trainings, which I offer fairly regularly, have reached out about collaborating. So in 2022, I'm working on designing a series of kind of pregnancy loss support training specifically for nurses so that they can feel, you know, they can have tools and skills at hand to work with those who experience pregnancy and infant loss. Um, I'm also working with someone on creating a monthly healing circle, kind of a gathering for those who experience pregnancy loss, which would focus on meditation and um, kind of self-awareness and, and mindfulness. So we're always also interested if, if there's something that someone's like, you know what, I would love for there to be an event like this or an offering like this. Uh, we're really interested because we're creative and collaborative minded in working with people or in developing an offering that doesn't yet exist. So we always like say, please reach out, connect. And we're also very compassionate people. So if you're looking for a fellow griever to talk to about going through something difficult, you are welcome to send us an email or reach out and we're happy to find time to talk to you about what you're going through. You know, I mean, I know I've already shared this with you, but I'm going to say it again. I love that you are truly taking the full spectrum approach to not only education, but support and not only support, but education, right? Like you are, co you're covering all of the bases for all of the people, which is a, a huge weight for you to carry, but such a, um, a rewarding one, I would imagine, and such an important one to just be able to 
elevate these conversations and help help people understand how how to support, how to grieve, because it's not something that we have experience with. It's not something that we talk about. It's not something that we educate on as a society. And you are, I mean, you're really <laughs> carrying quite the load in doing it, but it's so needed and from so many different perspectives. And it, it really seems like you're trying to fill in as many of the holes as you possibly can, which for one person or one couple, I should say, that's a, that's a lofty, that's a lofty bit of work for you. Uh, you definitely have your work cut out for you, but I just, I mean, I am so thankful that you exist and that you're here doing this work and that we have access to you and that people can have access to you and our listeners can come to you. And, you know, we, we need more of you. We could clone you and just put you everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's so, so sweet. Yeah. I mean, we just, you know, we feel capable of doing a lot. I mean, partly because of our training and our experience as university educators and writers. And so we feel like we have these skills and, you know, uh, priorities just change when Finley died. I remember in the hospital, I just felt like, okay, that, that chapter's done. Like, I do not feel like I need to teach university students how to read plays anymore. Yeah, I just, that's done. What's next? And so it was really allowing the healing. And like I talked about at the beginning, those several weeks of being completely broken and demolished and slowly letting a process take hold in which I began healing and then seeking out what felt really meaningful. And this has kind of blossomed. And as we've met and connected with fellow grief workers and death workers and birth workers and healers of all kinds and healing arts people, I mean, it's just, it's been really powerful to see what's out there. And ultimately it's a way that we, I mean, Finley is very present in our life every day. I mean, his brothers talk about him. His pictures are around. I mean, but the work that we do is so inspired by him that it really allows us to work with him and through him in in so many ways that we could never have anticipated. I mean, we really feel guided. We think of Finley as like our the wind blowing the sails of our sailboat, you know, and, and our living children are in the sailboat. And Finley's this much more powerful, all-encompassing force that is like guiding us in a direction. And so inviting abundance is really a way to kind of ask for and invite in healing, learning, growing, connecting energies in the world. And that's so, so much a part of our understanding of Finley and and of being his parents. Ah, Yeah. And it's never ending work, right? You have, I mean, if, if you did this for the rest of your life, you would continue to uncover and discover and learn and evolve in more ways to be able to just be more, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for, but. (laughs) Well, fully, fully in the world. I mean, that's what we really try to be fully in the world and what matters and what feels significant and how do I really show up for myself, for my family, for my community, for the world. And again, COVID I mean, the levels of grief and loss that people are experiencing are so intense. And so I'm always so grateful that when anybody wants to do this work, because I really, again, think, and I said this earlier too, but the ripples of doing this self-healing work, supporting someone else, validating someone's experience, broadening the understanding of grief, teaching people about supports and resources so that they can help others, like we as many people as can do this need to do it. (laughs) That's my, like, I'm a grief advocate, like grieve and then help and support others grieve. And together we heal. Yeah. And like you said, with COVID is a perfect example, but it goes so far beyond loss. It is like, there are so many things that we, 
need to be able to grieve to just be healthy humans. <laughs> and yes. And the more we can share those tools and lead by example for other people, the more we can start to sort of rise the tide for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. This has been such a great and such an informative and such a powerful conversation. Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your your experience and your vulnerability and your wealth of knowledge and all of the things. I mean, wow, there was so much, so much in this past hour and a half. Oops. Um, and I just appreciate everything that you have shared today. And I appreciate you and all of the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you so much, Kimberly. I mean, I, it really means a lot to me. I'm really grateful to be a part of this series and to connect with you and to support you in any way that I can as you move forward too. Thank you. Yeah. We'll have to figure out how we can collaborate in the future. Um, absolutely. Just to get you, yeah. to get you 